Happy New Year and welcome to the National Speakers Association's audio magazine, Voices of Experience. I'm Camille Valvo and my thought this month is, what's new for you in 09? It's a great time to reflect on what's working and what's not in your business. And hopefully our lineup this month will also inspire you. So let's get a move on, shall we? Much to my father's dismay, I was never very good in maths. But in our next segment, we calculate how to sell your book, not just to one country or in one language, but to the six billion inhabitants of this planet. Let's see, 2495.6. This is Joe Somerville with another edition of The Real Deal. I am joined by Joachim de Posada, author of Don't Eat the Marshmallow Yet, which to date has sold over two million copies. His most recently released book, Don't Gobble the Marshmallow, ever, has already reached 350,000 copies in sales. Joachim, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell your fellow NSA members what they can do to sell such large numbers of books. Okay, uh, they can do a lot, a lot of things. However, I must point out that it is the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, uh, people write books and they think that uh, they are going to be selling right away and that, uh, you know, once you write a book, you know, customers will flock to your doors to buy your book and it's not the case. No matter if you sign with a big publisher, no matter who it is, actually the sales of the books is the author, the ones that have to do things that will sell the book. Now, people ask me, why were you so successful in selling so many books? Well, in my case, it was because my book was taken to the Frankfurt Book Fair. In Frankfurt, that's the largest book fair in the whole world. I insisted to my publisher and my agent, I told him that I wanted the book to be in Frankfurt, because I knew that uh, that would expose it to other languages. So when they took uh, Berkeley, which is an imprint of, of Penguin, when they took the book to uh, Frankfurt, it, w- it was a big success, and around 15 languages bought it, which means that more than maybe three or four billion people have access to the book because of the language. Maybe maybe five billion because China bought it, and uh, and, uh, and Taiwan and, uh, and and Turkey and and Spanish and Portuguese and English. I wrote, I wrote it in English, but it's 17 languages, uh, and that's why it sold so 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 well. Now in the states, I did not have the same level of success. In the states, I was only able to sell 20,000. And uh, so I would tell authors that if my efforts were geared to, to, to the U.S., but when it was picked up by foreign publishers, what I did is that I got in contact with them and I told them, I'm available for interviews, I'm available for TV, for radio, for uh, newspaper. So that's a big, big thing that authors must uh, understand. They have to go into radio programs, they have to try to get their name out there, and then talk about their book constantly. One big advice, every author, before the book is published, should start looking for the audience. What audience will be receptive to my book? And start approaching that audience with the offer of a book when coming out at a discount or whatever, but offer the book before it's published. And once the book is published, everyone has to at least daily, three 
actions that will improve the sales of the books. In other words, you get up in the morning and you have to think, what three things I have to do today that will mean possible sales? It could be calling a radio station. It could be sending an email. It could be calling a, an influential friend. It could be calling a Rotary Club to be invited to the Rotary Club. It could be attending the Rotary Club to talk about your book and what you're doing. And that means sales. I'm a firm believer that, that if you do three actions a day, you will be able to do anything you want in life because 99.9% .9 of the authors will not. Okay, uh, another point which is very important. You try to sell a lot of books to one single company. That's very important. I sold, for example, for one single company, they bought 50,000 of my books, okay? And uh, they gave it to every employee. American Airlines has bought thousands of my books. Uh, they give it to the employees. So if you get a corporation that, and that likes your subject and it can be valuable for their employees, that's a way to sell a lot of books. Okay, let me just kind of summarize uh, some of the advice you've given so far. I've heard it fall into really kind of three categories. Uh, one is that you must realize as the author that it's your job to sell the book, not the publisher. Exactly. Number two is that you can't really rely on, I guess what I'd call pull marketing. People won't come to you. You have to be aggressive and practice some form of push marketing to not only be accessible for interviews, but to actively seek them out and gain publicity for the book. Absolutely. And then number three, what I heard you say is, in so many words, it's much easier to sell 50,000 copies of the book to one person than one copy to 50,000. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And I, one thing I said is that uh, you should look at your book as a worldwide book, not only an American or U.S. book. You have to look at the whole world. There's six billion people in the planet. We have 340 million here in the States. But China has 1.4 billion. And India has 1 billion. Okay? And Brazil has uh, 100 and something million. You know, there are a lot of people outside that could benefit from your book. So you try to get it into as many languages as possible. How do you do that? You go to Frankfurt Book Fair. Or you get someone to take your book to Frankfurt. If one buyer from any country likes your book, they'll buy it. Now, is your book the same, basically, the same concepts and the same principles translated into different languages, or are the concepts different? No, different no, editions? no, no. In my case, uh, my book is about self-discipline. And its name, Don't Eat the Marshmallow Yet, because it's based on a, in an experiment that was done in, in Stanford University with four-year-old kids. And uh, the kids that did not eat the marshmallow uh, were more successful than the kids that ate the marshmallow when the study was completed 15 years later, which means self-discipline is the most important factor for success. So when the Koreans, it sold one million copies in Korea, and it was number one bestseller for 52 weeks in a row. In the history of Korea, it's been the most uh, sold book. And uh, I asked them when they interviewed me, how come he sold so many books? And they said, because in your book, you identify the secret to success, which is self-discipline, the ability to delay gratification. And what was interesting is that then the journalist said, which, by the way, Mr. Posada, it is America's Achilles tendon. You know, it is America's weakness. So he told me that we in the States are not having the discipline to produce more than what we spend we are a nation now of consumers. We have a trillion dollar deficit 
that has affected our credit markets, has affected our uh, our economy, our real estate, everything, and our dollar is very soft because we are spending more than what we are producing. So this book will be applies to, to to business people, applies to countries, applies to communities, applies to schools, to companies, to everyone. Did you realize when you were writing the book that you wanted it to go out to international audiences, or did that come later when you started thinking about marketing the book? No, I always knew and I always thought that I had to write a book that at least would be in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Because with that, I cover a billion people. What surprised me is that Asia was going to be my champion. Asia selling uh, the two million copies uh, of one book, uh, selling maybe a million uh, seven, you know, and the other 300,000 all over the world. Uh, that, that was a surprise, Asia. With the real deal on book sales and how to increase them, it's been Joaquim Di Posada. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. We're now going to move on to the personal dimension of branding. And staying true to our NSA theme, Keep It Real, producer Leslie Everett interviews immediate past president of PSA, Alan Stevens. Hi, this is Leslie Everett. What I'm going to be talking about today is the element or the fourth phase of the personal branding concept that I've talked about, and that's about how we project our brand. We do know as speakers that we need to use the media as much as we possibly can to build awareness about our brand, build awareness about our levels of expertise, our products. But maybe there are some other ways to project our brand that are maybe slightly different in terms of how we use the, the, the media in different ways. Now, I'm lucky today to be joined by Alan Stevens from the UK, who I believe to be the best media coach I've certainly worked with and come across. Thanks for joining me, Alan. It's my pleasure, Leslie. I wanted to ask you, that we hear this cliche all the time that there's no such thing as bad PR or bad press. Mm -hmm. Now, I've, I'm interested in this because when we're building a personal brand, we're not just interested in how we get our message out to the media and, and our names in the media and the press again through TV, radio or articles, but actually we're interested in making sure it's the right message. So in your opinion, when it comes to our personal brand, is there such a thing as bad press? Absolutely, Leslie. You can get good press and you can get bad press. And the old cliche that all publicity is good publicity, I'm afraid, is wrong. Uh, there have been very many examples of people, CEOs, for example, who have been caught out saying something they shouldn't have said, and that's not only severely damaged their company brand, but their personal brand as well. Mm, sure. Any examples of that? Well, one of the best examples, best known certainly in Europe, is a jeweller called Gerald Ratner, who was speaking to a very large audience in London, in the UK, and produced a couple of his products, which he sold in his jewellery shops across the UK, and used a word I'd rather not use on Voice of Experience, <laughs> but it was a rather rude word. He held up one of his products and said, this product is, well, not particularly good, should yes, we say. I he used a, word, well. a euphemism for rubbish. Unfortunately, there were some reporters in the back of the room. They picked up the story, and it was headline news uh, across all of the papers the next day. As a result of that, his business virtually folded within a couple of months. So he lost Goodness. all of his business, lost his credibility, and the brand was severely damaged. So there is bad publicity. So that really did damage what we would call his personal brand, whereas this happened some time ago. Maybe mm. the term personal brand wasn't banded around quite so, so much then. Well, that's true. And the thing was, he, Gerald Ratner was the face of the brand. Absolutely. Rather like Branson is the face of Virgin. And he was, he was identified with the brand, so his personal brand was identified with his corporate brand, which it is for many of us as speakers. Our personal brand is our corporate brand. That's, that's who we are. So what you're saying is it doesn't matter how good our products are, 
if we as speakers don't project a personal brand that's congruent with what our products say they can do for us, that's damaging. It's very important, Leslie. I know you've talked about this a lot. You've got to be congruent. You've got to be authentic. You've literally got to walk the talk. And if you don't do that, then people will see through that. People can see if you're not behaving in a way that you're telling people how to behave. And if you don't do that, if you're not completely congruent, your brand's going to fail. It's all about trust, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So have you got any innovative ideas that we could use, um, use the media for? If you think about people who've been in the speaking profession for many years, CSPs out there, are there ways that we can perhaps be a bit more creative with how we use the media, something a bit more innovative rather than the normal stuff we, we a- Absolutely, about? Leslie. There, there are all sorts of innovative ways that you can start to use the, the digital media that are open to us, for example. I mean, we all know about social networking, how you can get your message out there. But there are all sorts of tools now becoming available to us. There's something called Twitter.com, yes. which is becoming very, very popular. Tell I, us about I, that. Well, Twitter is very interesting. It's what we call microblogging. It's a way of just saying what you're doing now. And it sounds rather banal. It's like sending a text message to a website and people subscribe to your text messages. But what they do, they connect with you in a way that allows them to understand your personal brand very well. Uh, recently, Britney Spears is now on there. So mm-hmm. I'm now connected to Britney Spears. I, I know what she's up to. It's probably a publicist that's wow. writing it. Is that good for your brand, uh, Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'll see how that goes. I'm going to have to disconnect at someone. Let's see how she behaves. But there are a, a number, of peop- number of people who are on there and their personal brand is enhanced as a result of using a tool which is completely free at twitter.com, which a lot of us wouldn't have thought of using maybe even six months ago. So it's a way that we can perhaps allow people to know a little bit more about us so we become more human, maybe there's more of an emotional link to, mm. to our brand perhaps than there would be if people hadn't got that communication with us. That's right, that's what people, people love to get to know you. They, they like to feel that they know you as a person, that, you know, your personal brand even though they've never met you, they, they want to mm. understand. That's what, you know, that's what I see personal branding as being. It, it's, it's putting yourself out there in front of people as, as though people know you quite well. And the better they know you, the more they trust you, the more they're going to buy from you. Yes, it's very true, isn't it? We, perhaps don't, we know this as speakers. We know that it's important to be authentic when we're off stage and on stage. But perhaps we haven't thought about how we could use the media to enhance our authenticity. So that, that's, that's a good point. That's right. And the thing is, a lot of people don't use the media. They'll get a phone call from a reporter or somebody will say, can you write us a piece? And they say, well, I'm too busy. I'm traveling from one gig to another. I really don't have time to do that. Say yes to the media. Yes. You say yes to the media. And if, if you work well with the media, then you will get asked again. So again if we say no... That could damage no. our brand as being not Absolutely. somebody who's particularly helpful. And the Absolutely. media need instant responses often. That's what they want. You can enhance your brand using the media or you can damage it by saying, no, I'm not prepared to do that because they won't ask you again. Now, Alan, you're a very successful media coach, I know, and you work globally um, in, in coaching people how to be to come across well and positively in front of the, the media in all, to, in, in all forms. Is there any one event in the media that transformed your career and... and shot you into a memorable space perhaps as the media coach to go to absolutely there is and uh, quite a few years ago about 10 years ago uh, when I was involved on the early days of the internet uh, I was involved with a website which sold a software package and software package for working out your income tax somebody broke into it they hacked into the site and they exposed 2,000 credit card numbers online it was an absolute scandal the worst thing was I was working for a consumer association at the time so it was very embarrassing I was put up as media spokesman the day after that happened. I did 57 media interviews in one day. I did CNN, Sky, BBC, lots of radio, lots of print. Three months later, I discovered that lots of media training companies were using my videos and my audios as an example of how to cope in a crisis on the media. Wow, that's amazing. That was a turning point for me because all of a sudden I was famous as the person who knew how to cope in a crisis and could demonstrate that. So I immediately packed in my day job, 
<laughs> set up the company training people how to do that and now we specialise in crisis media management and that, that was definitely a turning point for me and the media were responsible for that. So that niche area of expertise that you have was you became known for almost overnight. Absolutely. So media is a very powerful thing. I absolutely agree. Is there, is there, what's the lesson that we could take overall from that then if you were to sum that, that up? What well, the, the lesson, as I say, coming back to it, say yes to the media. Right. You know, the fact was I could have put my hand up and said, I'm not prepared to go in front of the cameras. You know, we've got something to hide. But because I was able to go out there and I was able to say, yes, it's happened. We're sorry for it. We've fixed it. We're going to compensate people and do the right sort of thing. Because I said yes to the media, that transformed my career. Do you think we should get practice at speaking to the media as, as speakers? Do you think just because we're experts that we are okay in terms of speaking to journalists and things, do you think we should get coaching ourselves on that? Well, I would say that, of course. But there is a big difference between us as speakers standing on a platform and doing what we do and delivering and delivering sound bites to the media or, or being an expert in a slightly tangential area. And I think there is a big difference between what we do as speakers on stage and what we would do in a studio. And I've seen lots of speakers kind of go to pieces in front of a camera yes. or a microphone. So yes, you do need to get some advice and encouragement. There are lots of good media coaches around, not just me, but there are lots, no, lots, lots of people around who will give advice, but you, it's a skill and you need to learn it. And I guess if we come across badly on camera in a news interview, we're not exactly projecting a great advert for ourselves as a speaker, so that could be damaging in its, its own right. Well, that's right, and you'll, you'll be amazed how many people will have seen you on television. You know, I know you do television appearances as well as I do, and people will often come up to you and say, yes. we, we saw you on that news program, you came over really well. Yes. Because all the time you're it's on really camera, you're projecting your personal brand, and that's why it's so important. Great. There's some great tips there, Alan. Thank you. If people want to hear more about Media Coach and get some free information, perhaps, where can they go to? They come to www.mediacoach.co.uk. Marvellous. Thanks very much, Alan. My pleasure. Thanks, Leslie and Alan. And congratulations this year on the 10th anniversary of the Professional Speaking Association. This month on VOE, National Speakers Association's President, Certified Speaking Professional Sam Silverstein, shares with us how continuing professional development is having a huge impact on his business and can do the same for yours. I just returned from NSA's first fall conference. By all accounts, it was a big success. From an education standpoint, there were some outstanding sessions. Two sessions that I went to were about working on the business as opposed to in the business. Bob Smith and Robert Bradford delivered masterful programs with incredible information. I also spent time in Matt Holt's session on publishing and Ford Sake's session on social networking. Every minute in those sessions was time well spent. While I obviously couldn't attend all of the sessions, I found the thought-provoking information that these people shared incredibly valuable. I would highly advise buying the CDs of those sessions. And I only heard great things about the other sessions as well. But the educational sessions were only part of the story. We had tremendous networking opportunities at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. When you take what you learned in the sessions and combine it with meaningful conversations in the hallways, it is always a great experience. The bottom line is that with what I have worked on and am implementing, I am sure that I will achieve a positive return on my investment very soon. The Winter Conference is February 12th through the 15th and undoubtedly will be a great investment as well as a wonderful time. My takeaway is that it is not enough to just work in my business. I need to continuously work on my business. 
By improving how I do business, I know that I will be better positioned to sell myself and speak more often. We must continuously work in new and improved ways to get ourselves on the platform. As we grow our business, not only are we being more successful, but we also get our ideas out into a larger audience and have the opportunity to impact more people. So I have to ask, are you working on your business? Are you taking the time to question what you have done in the past and look for ways to improve it moving forward? Do you regularly communicate with other business professionals and learn from them? I hope to see you at the Winter Conference. I know we will be able to work on our business and our relationships, and I'm sure that the financial return from the Winter Conference will even exceed that of the Fall Conference. I'll see you next month. Keep it real. My next guest earned his stripes as a marketer and promoter of many of the speaking icons we follow today. Zig Ziglar, Tom Hopkins, and Dennis Waitley, to name a few. So on the very important topic of marketing, please join me and certified speaking professional Rob Salisbury. Great to have you here on VOE, Rob. Oh, thanks, Camille. Great to be in the studio with you. Now, having been a marketer and promoter of some of the most successful and high-profile speakers in the world, can you share what worked? Well, it was a good run. We had a lot of fun for a lot of times. I think it was probably four things, I think, back that really made a difference. Number one, we, uh, we looked at our plan. We worked about eight months out on promoting in a general context and marketing about four months out from the programs and then selling. And that started within three months, really selling hard. And finally, to make it work, we followed up and followed through on all the leads and opportunities to generate training and speak opportunities for our teams. Excellent points. And anything else? Well, you know, when you go to the store to buy uh, fruit, you can get one banana or five or a whole bunch. So we would go out and see people and we'd actually promote market and sell by seeing managers who can make a decision about sending five, 10, 15, 20 people to our program versus just telesales or over the phone. So the leverage was very important, multiple sales with one decision maker. That's great. So when you see emerging opportunities, how do you take advantage of that? Mm, well, I think you've got to be realizing that cross-marketing all the time is really important. So what we do is we look at different marketplaces that are coming up and saying, what's, what's expanding and what isn't? For example, SME Marketplace is it's always going through different floats and opportunities that are expanding, and sometimes it's best to be in there and, and be in front of rotary groups or uh, sales or marketing executives or perhaps the, the institutes of management because you can really capture the right situation and be in front of large groups in, in maybe one or two hours. Um, number, number two is, I'd say, probably the educational marketplace, uh, universities, colleges, uh, skill training uh, organizations where you can be involved and really expand your niche and market your, your image your, and what you do as a niche marketer, perhaps. And number three, of course, the corporate world. And uh, there's lots of opportunities there. And sometimes it's higher and lower depending upon what's going on. But uh, you, can, you can be involved with uh, trade shows or showcases or convention and visitor bureau situations where you can be involved for three or four days, five days. It's great. Right. So that's the one, two, three effect. Okay. Now in your own business, which has traveled from the U.S. to Australia and now firmly entrenched in Southeast Asia, what would be your top five marketing tips you could share? Only five. Only five. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. We might have to do another session. Well, our theme for, for, for this year with NSA, et cetera, is, uh, is keeping it real. And I think it's really important to keep your materials up to date every two to three years. You know, get your photographs done properly. Make sure your marketing material is looking sharp. 
you know, it's it's tough to meet somebody with a business card that was done in 1999. It's, it's I think the day's gone by. So that's number one, be authentic, be real. Number two is, is postcards. And um, I know a lot of people, you know, use postcards for different things, but uh, do we use them for the right occasions? You know, not just thank you notes or a general good to stay in touch, but really plan postcard marketing. Uh, one of the guys I met years ago, who many people know, is Scott Friedman, past national speaker's president. And I've been getting postcards from him overseas for 10-plus years. And, you know, it's the funny bone things that Scott does. He makes it real, but it's, it's appropriate. And I'll probably get one or two a year, but I say, hey, right away. And we do business overseas and see Scott from time to time, so it's great to stay in touch. But postcards are very important. Now, I know in the past you've used postcards with specific themes, what can you tell me about that? Well, we have, and there's been different things for different markets. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I really thought about Southeast Asia and uh, wanted to get involved with you know the marketplace that's over here. So I, I really tie into the New Year's theme for Chinese New Year, which goes for 15, 16 days. And that gets a lot of leverage. It's not like just Valentine's Day. It might not be like uh, Flag Day, you know, something like that in a single hit. But this is like two weeks, so it really leverages. So we we send them out about a week beforehand. It kind of gets us three or four weeks of of leverage, and it's very smart and very sharp. And nothing on there about who we are and what we do as much as opportunities for people to download stuff from our website and just free things. Lots of just tips and easy things. That's great. Mm. Okay, your next tip. Well, the next one is uh, about database and creating a database. So there's two parts. There's acquisition and there's application. Now, we know networking, we do this all the time. We get business cards, go to things, but do we act, what do we actually do with it? So get it out of your hands, get it in a database, and given time, that'll grow. So acquisition is very important, but number two is the application. And like the postcards, what happens later on is you're able to actually use the database to have in time for what you want to do versus scrambling for an idea. So that's number three is database and keeping it current and getting those things out there in front of people. Now, I just want to stop you because I know under the banner of acquisition, you quite often um, use industry magazines and newspapers and really seek out mm. contacts that are um, valuable to you in your business. So yeah. tell me a bit about that. Well, it comes back to my days of being a promoter for Tom Hopkins, you know, a long time ago. And I got to thank him for this idea. You, you go through the newspapers and not just reading the sports page or, or the want ads, but you look for people who are actually employing people. So when companies put ads in the papers, like in the employment section, that means they're, they're growing. They're, they're looking for good people. They need skills. So my responsibility is to let them know who I am. All right? So that's what we do. As I, as I take those things out, I look at them, and I go, okay, who's the general manager, the sales manager, the CEO, the CFO, the human resource manager? And we get those in our database, and then we send things to them. Soft marketing might be a postcard, might be some information. Generally, it's in hard copy because they actually look at it and keep it. That's why the postcards work well because people put them on the billboards and they have them around. But uh, two or three or four of those, next thing you know, we're getting a call or somebody's getting in contact with us about something, and it just leverages from there. Excellent. Mm. Great idea. Okay, what was your next tip? Next tip is all about product. And uh, we all know the America Express ad, you know, don't leave home without it. And how many of us have books and CDs and video programs or DVDs, but they just stay at home? We go out the door, but it doesn't. So I'm really a big believer on taking your things with you. If you're on a plane, you know, you're at a bus stop, you might be in a taxi, you might be in town in a meeting, a networking function, have things on call and you pull it out and say, hey, this is some of the stuff we do. And people are impressed, you know, they go, wow, I didn't know you did that. 
or you might be, you know, having a product with a couple different speakers or marketers that you work with, and you can showcase them as well as yourself. And I suppose it's a great way to get past the gatekeeper, isn't it? <laughs> well, we, we did that very successfully over the years with different speakers, because I'd often walk inside of a, a building for an appointment, and I'd just come straight out and go to the second floor underneath the one I was just at, and walk into the front door and say, look, my name is, and we represent this person. I give them a, their book, and or our book, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, they're taking the decision maker, and then they come back and say, hey, I know this person, or what's this all about? And you've got the decision maker right in front of you, a 15, 20-second conversation, maybe exchange cards, and you're on your way. Great. Simple. Okay. Real what's simple. next? Well, finally, of course, is, um, is promotion and marketing of yourself as a speaker or a trainer or a business coach or an author. Um, start locally and grow. And that's what happened for me. And you go locally and then regionally and then nationally and then internationally. And uh, given time, things can really go. And if you're very good at what you do, you'll get the phone call. And next thing you know, <laughs> you're on a plane to Australia doing some work overseas. Going forward now, so what's your buzzword for 2009? Oh, I only get one? Oh, you're, you're tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll get it down to two. Two things, collaboration and then leverage. And they go hand in hand because I think we can do so much collaborating with other people who have skills opposite ours or uh, jointly together, they help ours. And uh, leveraging, of course, once again, you get the opportunity to really leverage each other's skills and, and spread it around. And like, uh, like Cabot said years ago, you know, there's more to the pie. That's great. So, Rob, tell me, are there any resources you can re- recommend for our listeners? Yeah, look, uh, on the promotion marketing side, I'll stay away from the sales side, but let's just go with promotion marketing. A number of books have helped me over the years, and there's not a lot of them, so I think it's important to kind of drop back in your library and say, what do I have? One of the ones I picked up in uh, 94, uh, Stop Selling and Start Partnering by Larry Wilson and Hirsch Wilson with a forward by Harvey Mackay. Excellent book on, on getting yourself out there. Number two is uh, Permission Marketing. Uh, 99 released by Seth Godin. Very, very good. And finally, this one's a little off camera, but it's a great book to read for that different twist, is uh, Mark Stevens' book that came out in 2003 called Your Marketing Sucks. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Well, After your tips, thanks so much, Rob, for joining us. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Camille. You know, before I heard certified speaking professional Glenn Capelli's segments, I didn't know I had so many smarts. No wonder I got sent to my room all the time. Anyway, here he is speaking about our deepest smarts. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Hello, this is Glenn Capelli with Creativity in Presentation and Design. We've been looking at the wonderful work of Professor Howard Gardner and his multiple intelligences and what they mean to us as presenters. Last time round, we looked at music and musical smarts and how we can use music in active and passive concerts. Today, we look at how we can use music to teach some intrapersonal intelligence and maybe the link between the music rock star industry and what we do as speakers. Know it in your heart, there are many lands of smart Seven natural wonders of your world Every woman, every man, every boy and every girl The place for head and heart is the many lands of smart Perhaps the deepest smarts of all is how we learn to love and care and share 
the multiple intelligences taking us to intrapersonal, our ability to look inside ourselves and recognize our own patterns. I think it's not going to be the speaking that might finish us off as speakers. We love the moment of the speech and perhaps the design of the speech, but it's all the other stuff that wraps around it. How do we handle our ongoing emotional smarts, our intrapersonal smarts, our mental health? Carl Jung said that teachers needed to be strong in mental health, believing that when someone is in front of other people, they need to be a model of mental strength and health for their students to be able to, and to be able to keep their own energy vibrant. When we teach, speak, present, entertain, we give a lot of who we are, and there can be a mixture of a yin and yang of excitement and exhaustion in what we do. It can also become a dangerous distortion of our self-perception, and where we might fit in the scheme of things. I've always felt that the speaking industry had a touch of the mini rock star syndrome in it. You present at a big conference, the crowd gives you laughter, applause, and sometimes wild cheering. And for an instant, you've been able to move people to some magic, magic spot. And that energy ripples back to us, or tsunamis back to us, as a mass of emotion. You know, there is a touch of the bipolar in what speaking is about. We're at one moment getting the applause and then the next moment we're sitting alone in a hotel room. I think that everyone in this crazy industry should be talking through our endeavours for mental health and how we curtail the negative side of our sometimes up and down on and off profession. Toby Cresswell, a former editor of Rolling Stone, wrote an article about what happens to rock stars when the rocking stops. In it, he quotes Mark Seymour, frontman of the Australian rock band Hunters and Collectors, as saying, Rock and roll is the mothership of status anxiety. If this is true, then I believe the speaking industry is the son and daughtership of status anxiety. English philosopher Alain de Botton, in his wonderful book Status Anxiety, talks of status anxiety as being our quest for love from this world, our sense of recognition and concern for where we stand. The speaking world abounds with status anxiety. How often do speakers fret over the two or three negative comments on feedback sheets and forget to focus on the hundred or so popular and positive reviews? How often does the adrenaline run when a large audience stands to cheer? How often do we sit in a hotel room alone, spent, empty and near exhaustion afterwards? I am not much on giving advice. Different folks need different strokes for their different scenarios. But if I were to share a few insights of intrapersonal intelligence, they would be these. After speaking, we need to get our feet firmly on the ground and remember that we're just another human being amongst wonderful human beings. Every person has unique worth and their unique story. It is a pleasure and a privilege to share with folk. There are often many places on the planet. Now, I've spoken in 26 countries and some of you would have spoken in perhaps 100 countries. But there are many places on the planet where being a speaker is not a viable option as a job. These countries need farmers, manufacturers, medical practitioners way more than they need a person who can talk, no matter how valuable the talking and ideas may be. To be in front of people as a presenter is an honour. We need to remember this sometimes. Instead of viewing other speakers as competitors or comparisons, relish their message, methods and be thankful for teammates. 
have honest, and I'm sorry about the Australian language here, but have honest, no bullshit conversations with buddies about how things feel. No one understands our lifestyle more than our fellow presenters and performers. National Speakers is a group for empathy. And beware the artificial soothers, the alcohol, the substances, the addiction to work, the addiction to applause, the gathering of accolades. We need to mix a little yoga with a lot of laughter in our lives. Find our natural way to maintain joy. And we need to learn to say no to overwork. Say yes to things that are not work-related and have them in a healthy brew. The philosopher Sheldon Kopp says that we should remember that on one hand, this whole world, this whole universe, this one song was created just for us. And on the other hand, we are all nothing but ash and dust. (laughs) Somewhere in this continuum is our place. We are ideas contributors. We are poets who write in the air. We are important meaning makers. And we're multi-layered human beings. And we need to remember our sense of humanity, our sense of humour, in order to have our sense of health. If not, the status anxiety may diminish our spirit and ultimately burn us out. And that, I think, is not smart. We're looking at the many lands of smart, and I look forward to chatting with you next time round. Enjoy your health. Enjoy your play. Enjoy your sense of intelligence. And I look forward to next time when we look at creativity in presentation and design. This is Glenn Capelli. Catch you next time. Do you fancy a trip out of town in 2009? Why not tee up your plans with an International Federation event? In March alone, France, the Netherlands, Australia and Malaysia are hosting their professional speaking conferences. From there, the Global Speakers Summit, April 16 to 19, in Cape Town, South Africa, is just a short hop away. If you need more information, have a look on the International Federation website. That's IFFPS.org. It's a true privilege to rub shoulders with speaker winners in my VOE role. Certified speaking professional and CPAE Naomi Rohde, along with her hubby Jim Rohde, CSP, received the 2008 Nido Kubain Philanthropist of the Year Award. This honors their significant contribution in our world by being examples of philanthropy and stewardship. Naomi, due to a minor blip on her radar, accepted the award from a hospital bed, where I'm sure she charmed the entire staff. Now, back on track, here she is on Take 10 with Camille. This is Take 10 with Camille, and we've got Naomi Rohde, CSPCPAE, here with us. She's going to share a few thoughts. So, Naomi, a book that made a difference was? Well, interestingly enough, aside from the Bible, which would be certainly my number one book, uh, Michelangelo's The Agony and the Ecstasy was an amazing book for me because the reality of this genius artist on his back in his 80s, painting the Sistine Chapel, paint in his eyes so much that he almost went blind, challenged me to recognize that whatever platform we have, and for us, of course, it's professional speaking, we never stop learning. We never stop desiring to be absolutely excellent at what we're doing. 
Great metaphor. I love that. That's fantastic. My Italian husband will love that too. Naomi, what's your definition of success? I think success, obviously, is a paradigm that somewhat changes through our lives. But I will tell you one thing that I said to my husband, Jim, who I'm in business with, in the speaking business, when we started really the speaking platform business. We also developed a product business that is quite large out of Phoenix, and that's a result of the platform business. But when we started the platform business, we were young when we married, so our kids were in high school when we started our speaking. And I said to Jim, I'm sure at least 35 times, if we lose our family because of speaking, we will never be successful. So I think life balance, where you have your priorities and you value your family and your faith and your friends, and you don't sacrifice them for the platform. And when you're happy in those relationships, your platform business is going to be far more successful because your heart's clean and your bucket's full and you've got lots to give. So that would be my definition of success. Beautiful. How about a marketing tip? Can you share a marketing tip with us? I think marketing is, of course, a science as well as an art. And I think touching people at tender times Finding ways to reach out to the people you have already served and served well. And in some way, remembering them is an amazing marketing tool. I think we all recognize that the people we've already spoken to and have pleased with our presentations are easier to sell again than the cold sale, than the marketing to the stranger. So I think touching people at tender times might be a little phrase that I often think about. And probably a good book title. Yes. (laughs) Another tip, perhaps, a platform tip that you could share with us? A platform tip for me is being prepared in my soul. I just read a book entitled Holy, H-O-L-Y, Listening. And the concept of that book was that as communicators, we enter into a place that's that's really, in a sense, holy when we listen to people. If we listen with our five senses, if we listen with our hearts, and I think the platform is a place of listening as well as speaking, of reading the audience and continually being present with them. Probably one of the saddest things that I ever heard one of the dynamic speakers in NSA say to me who came in and out of NSA like a flash. He didn't last. He didn't last in our profession, was, and he had tremendous capabilities. But when I asked him what he was passionate about, he said the platform, and I thought, great. And I said, how do you feel about the people in the audience? And he looked at me like I was out of my mind. He said, you know, I don't even like people. My goal is get on the platform, give my stuff, which is great stuff, and get out of there. And I knew he wouldn't last. Because if you're not in love with the people, if you're not focusing on them and listening to them, then I believe that your receptivity will be diminished tremendously. That's lovely. And I love the idea of both listening and speaking on the platform. Very true. Naomi, in hindsight, what's the one thing you wish someone would have told you before you'd gotten into this business or when you'd first started? In hindsight, I think if I had known that it would be so long-lasting, all-encompassing, continually passionate pursuit for me, I would have maybe even approached it with more science, 
with more diligence, and certainly I've approached it with science and diligence, but I think I would have even done so more so. You know, we go to four years of college and then graduate school to become a professional. We don't do that in the profession of speaking. Our college and our graduate school, although some people certainly graduate and, and get degrees in, in speech, but most of us don't. Our college and our graduate school is here at NSA. It's in our groups. I'm in Speakers Roundtable, and it's just the most amazing group of professionals. And we sit and we, we roundtable and we help each other and we help create excellence. I think I would have even pursued that more diligently if I had known. Mm. Okay. Next product? Any idea what your next product might be? Well, I came out with a book last year that was a book from my heart, and it's entitled My Father's Hand, A Daughter's Reflection on Her Father's Wisdom, and it was really a special product for me. I, I don't have another book in my mind right now. I am going to, I have been hired to do a, another marriage enrichment seminar on a cruise ship this summer in Alaska, and um, our wonderful uh, producer here, Rocky, is going to take those marriage cassettes that I did for the eight other uh, cruise seminars I did on marriage enrichment and put them into, of course, CDs so that they're a little more updated. Uh, so I guess the next product is to update a product that has been very successful for me in the past. And that brings us to a really kind of an interesting thought. Sometimes there are things that you have spent a tremendous amount of work on that you can repackage, recycle, and update to today's standard and today's mediums. That's right, yes. Yeah. So uh, e-books, I mean, have you delved into no, that area at all? No, I have not done e-books. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy about going virtual and you know what it, what direction is, and and there's a lot of merit in that. Uh, I'm a real touch and feel person, and I'm an avid reader, and I love to hold the book. Now that being said, I also download books on my iPod all the time because when I exercise, and in, am in my car, of course, that's a great way to listen to books. But I still like to hold them. What's the biggest challenge, do you think, then, for speakers in the future? I think the biggest challenge is probably to continue their passion, to clarify their focus, to recognize that they're an entrepreneur, and that the ultimate goal is not only to affect people's lives, which is certainly first, but a grave concern I have for a lot of our speakers is that we need to retire, in quotes, whenever that is, financially independent. So we have either products that continue to work for us after we stop speaking on the platform, or we have been financially astute enough that we are financially independent. Thank you. You've been just an amazing source of inspiration. Thank you so Thanks, much, Naomi. It seems every day there's some new way to deliver our content. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Certified speaking professional Craig Rispin tackles one area in his segment, Innovations Impacting the Speaking Industry. New trends in digital product creation for speakers. How to produce instant audio and video products live from stage. You've just delivered your best speech ever. Did you capture it? People are applauding you and asking for copies of your slides or a recording. Gee, I wish I recorded that speech you say to yourself. That will be the last time I let that happen. So next time you take to the stage, you'll be ready to capture your presentation using the latest technology. 
and you'll be ready to deliver almost instantly digital products to your raving fans. Certainly the easiest way to capture audio from your speech is with a digital voice recorder. Pop one into your pocket or clip it to your waist and plug in a little lapel microphone for the best quality. Olympus and Sony are two brands that make nice voice recorders. Some of the latest models record directly into MP3 format, perfect for digital delivery. But there's another trend for recording presentations that has recently emerged from the college and university market, and it's starting to make big inroads into the corporate market. In recent years, many college students have been required to have iPods, so their lectures can be podcasts that's digitally delivered directly to them. Many of these lecture recordings include the audio, with synchronized slides or a digital whiteboard video included. PDF versions of textbooks can also be podcast to students, too. If you'd like to be able to record your next presentation with great quality audio and synchronized slides, you can do it directly on your laptop on stage with three easy steps I'll cover next. The result will be a podcastable or downloadable video version of your speech. First, you'll need a wireless microphone that will be fed into your laptop to capture your voice and synchronize with your slides. The latest development has made this much simpler. Revo Labs' USB wireless microphone is a great little mic about the size of a lipstick. It comes with a USB base station that plugs into your laptop, and it also charges the mic. It's compatible with both Macs and PCs. Find out more about the Revo Labs USB microphone at revolabs.com. Next, you'll need to capture your slides with your wireless mic mixed into the video. On the Mac, the application I show you, spelled I-S-H-O-W, the letter U, is a great solution. Find it at shinywhitebox.com. On the PC, you can use Camtasia Studio from TechSmith. Using either iShowU or Camtasia Studio, set your audio input to your Revo Labs USB mic. Both applications have settings for iPod or iPhone output. Select this as your recording output. That will save your file as the industry standard MPEG-4 video format used for virtually all portable video players like iPods. And it's also the preferred upload format for YouTube these days too. Now, don't, don't forget, forget to hit record as you begin presenting. presenting. Both applications have hotkeys to trigger recording simply by hitting a function key. Camtasia Studio also has a big red button built right into PowerPoint. When you're done, just hit stop or the escape key. In seconds, you'll have an MPEG-4 video file of your presentation that you can sell back of room or you could give it to the meeting planner to offer as a free download. If you sell it from the back of room, all you'll need to do is collect payment and email addresses. Alternatively, upload it to your website for purchase after the event. Most shopping cart applications allow you to securely sell digital downloads from your website. Speak to your web consultant to set this up for you. If you're not into slideshows but like whiteboarding or flip charting, there are solutions for you too. Consider using a graphics tablet and draw directly onto your laptop screen. That can be projected instead of slides or in addition to them. And it can be recorded just as easily using the method previously described. The result is a really nice synchronized animation. For an ultra high-tech solution, have a look at Mimeo's products at mimio.com that can turn any whiteboard into a wireless screen recording device. Now, what I've described doesn't record you onto video, just your slides and your voice. But that's what many consumers are enjoying. Imagine yourself being able to listen to a speech on your iPod or laptop and be able to visually fast-forward through the slides to get just to the part you want to hear again. If you'd like to podcast your results, a great service is hipcast.com, spelled 
H-I-P-C-A-S-T.com. It makes it easy to upload a recording and instantly podcast the results. Or you could post it to your blog or website. You'll just need a broadband connection. I usually use the one at the venue or take along my own wireless broadband modem. The best part about this method is how little production time it takes to produce a fantastic professional digital product. Give it a try. Your clients and audiences will love it. And you will too. Speaker Magazine this month is all about publishing, so I figured it was fitting to interview a best-selling author. For our final interview this month, stay tuned to hear how this young gun clearly defines social media as his publishing success strategy. Welcome, Tim, to VOE. It's fantastic to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, The 4-Hour Workweek, your best-selling book, over 30-plus countries and a bestseller in every market that it's come out in, apparently. That I'm aware of. It's been sold in more than 30 languages, and it's come out, to my knowledge, in 9 or 10 thus far. All right. And so I heard your big dream is to have it in as many languages as possible, filling up your bookcase. How do you plan on doing that? Well, that was certainly one of my main fantasies going into it. And I think it's very healthy if you plan to write a book, number one, not to write it for financial purposes because of the economics of publishing, at least for income from the book. There's income you can get because of the book, speaking, et cetera, even if you only sell 500 copies. But I had very low expectations and high hopes. But my fantasy, first and foremost, was to have the bookshelf, like you said, with the book in as many languages as possible since I'm a language geek. And I think a very effective way to go about doing that is if you have a good agent and if you go to okdork.com, the website, and search my last name, F-E-R-R-I-S-S, I talk about how I sold the book and how I got an agent, you can actually not retain international rights and sell worldwide rights to a publisher that is very effective in those markets. And what you find is even though they may sell your book at a lower price, to those publishers, I mean, in some cases, very low prices, I mean, $1,500, $2,000, $3,000, if the book does well, you can make a much higher percentage royalty-wise than you would in the U.S. So there are some authors, I'm not going to name names, who actually make a very comfortable six-figure income by selling few copies in the U.S., but then really pushing international. And for me, part of enabling that is being very active online, where foreign publishers will take my material and translate it. That's another benefit of being online in uh, the, the blog world versus just in radio, let's say, or television, which tends to be very transient. And then secondly is I love to travel. So if I'm traveling and I, I'm going to be going through a country or I can be in a country like Denmark or in uh, Korea or wherever it might be, then I'll pop in for a day or two and do a few of the major media outlets. And I think that can pay huge dividends, and you can do it while you're taking a, a mini-retirement effectively. So th- those would be my main approaches. But I think the, the online social media aspect is, is extremely crucial. A lot of the speakers uh, listening to this CD, of course, want to know more about social media. So tell us a little bit about that. There are a few very simple options. So I'll give you an example of how a speaker might use it. Uh, First and foremost, I think that speakers shouldn't view themselves as speakers. They should view themselves as experts. And if you develop a reputation in a very specific field, speaking is one of your outlets, at least one of your income-generating activities. Uh, You can create a blog. You can go to WordPress.com, for example, to create a very search engine-friendly blog, create good content, I would say no more than once or twice per week, 
really put as much effort as you would, like I do, into a good blog post as you would for an article for The Economist. I'm not kidding. That's I spend the same amount of time on both. And really focus on good content that you can then seed to other places. Secondly, it's very easy to present yourself well on a blog like WordPress.com by hosting all of your videos on YouTube. And this enables you a tremendous amount of flexibility. It also provides others the ability to take your video and embed it in their own sites. So rather than mailing DVDs and so forth and so on, you can simply say, search for my name in quotation marks on YouTube, and I have close to 100 videos now with more than a million views. And that's a tremendous tool, not only for uh, domestic speaking, but international speaking. It's faster. You can hit more targets and get more conversions to engagements. Ah, okay. And that's not a difficult thing, seeing that a lot of speakers can have their material um, videotaped while they're doing it. Oh, absolutely. And you can cut the video segments, I would recommend, uh, to two to five minutes in length, no more. Three minutes is... is uh, somewhat the golden standard. So try to break it into small segments. And you can set that up in an afternoon. I mean, you could go to WordPress.com as soon as you hear this, set up a blog in 20 minutes, and take some of your video. If it's an AVI file, for example, MPEG, upload it to YouTube, and within 30 minutes, uh, you could have a blog with video right on the front page. Excellent. I, I bet everyone's just running out right now to do that, too. <laughs> so just getting back to your book, now apparently you were rejected by 14 out of 15 publishers, and obviously self-publishing wasn't your option. Why is that? I was, yeah, I was, I was rejected by 14 uh, out of 15, at least. The proposal, which was very well written and very well put together, and I had an A-list agent, went out to probably 40 publishers, and only one ended up bidding. Self-publishing was not a consideration for me uh, because of two primary factors. Number one, to, let's say, get on the Today Show or have a feature written about you in Forbes or something like that, Fortune Magazine, whichever your, your major media outlets would be, uh, they look for certain filters. They look for a certain stamp of approval. And just like someone might look for the school you went to or prior companies you've worked for on a resume, when it comes to experts, they're going to look for indicators, and one of them is having a traditional or at least well-known reputable publisher. Uh, if you publish through uh, any, any real self-publishing mechanism, unless it's like the Celestine Prophecy and you sell 300,000 copies out of the back of your car, which is extremely unlikely, then it will be near to impossible to get on a lot of the major media, unless you're coming on for a different reason. But they'll tend not to plug or promote self-published books. Secondly, trying to get a self-published book into the retail channels, let's say Barnes & Noble or Borders, in good placement is next to impossible, uh, unless you're willing to take on a second full-time job to compete with publishers who are buying the 20% of space reserved for new books. So for those reasons and more, I, I chose to go the traditional route. And the fact of the matter is, uh, the economics also, for me, I think makes sense to the extent that people look at it as, oh, I'm only getting, let's say, a 10 to 12% royalty, maybe 15 on certain performance clauses. The fact of the matter is the publisher isn't making an 85% profit because that means the book doesn't cost anything to produce, ship, promote, distribute. It's actually a, a quite equitable trade, in my opinion, from a financial standpoint. I could perhaps self-publish in the future, but I'm fully intending on having my next book to go through the traditional channels as well. And then I'll use my abilities in uh, the social media space to, to drive uh, sales online. But I'll let them handle the, the, the brick and mortar. So speaking of that, any hints on what your next book might be about? Uh, I'm keeping that fairly tight-lipped at the moment. I'd love to, to tell you more, but it will not have anything to do with work-life balance or productivity. 
Okay. It'll be a completely separate topic and much, much, much more controversial and I think much more interesting. I'm happy with the four-hour work week, but there's, there's a book that I've been wanting to write for about 15 years, and the next one will be that book. Excellent. Well, we look forward to hearing from that. Uh, your blog. Tell us a bit about your blog. Where can we find it? The blog is uh, just fourhourworkweek.com, F-O-U-R, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash blog, or you can go to fourhourblog.com, F-O-U-R. If you search my name, Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's, it'll come up in the first few results on Google as well. I think it's a fairly good example of how to create a blog that isn't affect a website. You don't have to keep those two separate anymore uh, because a blog is really just an easy way for you to manage your own website. And I use WordPress. Uh, but if you go there, you'll see a number of things. You'll be able to look at which of my posts are most popular because they're they're ordered and most popular of the last four weeks, my favorites, and then most popular of all time. Uh, you can look at how many comments they have uh, to see what the response is. And just like speaking to audiences, let's say 10 to 12 times on one topic, gives you all the feedback you need to write an excellent book, generally, if you've polished your performance from one to the next. Writing on a certain subject matter for, let's say, a sequence of four to five posts where you get let's just say 10 to 100 comments per post, will give you all the feedback you need to really write a compelling book. You'll see, based on comments and votes and so forth through dig.com or whatever social ranking site you might use, you can tell, almost in a laboratory-like setting, what works and what doesn't. So even if you don't have a high-traffic blog, it's still the perfect place to test concepts so you don't waste your time developing presentations or products that won't end up selling. If you go to my blog, you can also find, I think, one particular post that people would find relevant. It's called A Case Study in Hitting Number One on the New York Times. And it describes in length how I feel the book hit number one on the New York Times uh, business list and has stayed on the bestseller list for the last 67 weeks unbroken. Uh, so I'd recommend people just search New York Times bestseller case study on my blog. Just go to fourhourblog.com. Excellent. We're on to it. Thanks right. so much, Tim Ferriss, for joining us on VOE. My pleasure. Thank you. From where I stand on the platform as a corporate MC, I've noticed Death by Support Act is alive and well. One of the support acts in question is PowerPoint. If you've ever driven a long, straight stretch of road and felt a wee bit drowsy, you will surely relate to the effect that too many slides, as well as text-heavy visuals, can have on your audience. Speaker and social researcher Mark McCrindle shared a story to back up this argument. After a full day of speakers with PowerPoint at a recent conference, Mark took to the platform to present, casually mentioning he did not have PowerPoint. The audience reaction? A standing ovation. I truly believe in the adage, you are your best visual. But if you enjoy including PowerPoint in your presentations, I can recommend a website, www.slideshare.net, for some fresh ideas to keep your support act alive and well. On behalf of the entire VOE team, thanks for listening. This is Camille Valvo reminding you to keep it real. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.